This is the decision point with Anand Nanduri. Welcome to the offseason, Anand, for fantasy football, right? But not for not for the NFL. The NFL is this is when it gets this is when it gets good, Anand. This is the time when it gets good. This is when you you get to to see the fruits of your labor, you know, GM, head coach, everybody you've put in place. Um, this is when it gets really, really fun for, you know, dynasty sort of offseason. You've got all kinds of really, really, really good games. Um, obviously, this past weekend, not so much, but <laughs> going forward, we got a lot of really good games, so I'm excited about that. A few good games, a few good games, but the, the problem was that you had two playoff teams that weren't in the fucking playoffs, dude. That was the problem. This was infuriating to me. I mean, at least the the Raiders gave the Bengals a good game. That was a good game. That was one of the few good games this weekend, going on the road with an inferior roster and being competitive. Derek Carr, he went up a notch in my book. He's now at notch one. Now, I like it. He commands respect at this point to take that team to the playoffs and be competitive against the Bengals. Props to Derek Carr. He's rising up the dynasty rankings on playerprofiler.com. But it would have been nice. It would have been nice to see the Colts and the Chargers in the playoffs instead of the Raiders and the Steelers. Oof. Imagine, imagine the Colts and the Chargers. They, ugh. Matt, I get it. The Colts and the Chargers are probably objectively better teams and definitely would have been more fun to watch. Like there, There's no doubt about that. But you can't lose to the Jags and the Texans. <laughs> Yeah, because because they they could be the Colts are matchup nightmares, right? For some teams, the Colts are not easy to match up with. They could take some teams completely out of their comfort zone. And the Chargers are just one of the most talented rosters in the league. So that that would have been nice. That would have been nice. Oh well, you can't lose to the Jags and the Texans and then come complain to me. Like it, I'm sorry. It's well, just, that's true though. You know, like that's like, true. Look, like I wanted. Look. Everybody and their mother wanted Justin Herbert in the playoffs, just because who knows what that would have looked like. It would have been awesome. Right? Did you see? Did you see the the picture that Jim Irsay posted on Twitter? It was just him behind one of these gas powered fake fires. You know, you see these at resorts. They had like the the fake charcoal, and there's just like a you know a gas powered flame underneath it, and uh, they're just lame. Those are just super lame. And he was sitting behind one of those very weak, lame flames. And he posted on Twitter a picture of himself with uh, diamonds are forged in fire. <laughs> oh, my God. So leadership at the top is lacking with the Colts. I mean, thank God. Thank God he hired Chris Ballard. Thank God. Ballard and Reich. You know, every blind squirrel is going to run into a nut eventually. Yep. I, I still love that hire. I mean, I, lo- I love everything about that organization that they've built, so to speak except for the fact that they cannot trust their quarterback to do what is necessary at any given moment. It's the it's the Jimmy Garoppolo, right? We all watched it play out live on TV. It's, you're great, you're great, you're great, you're doing everything we ask you to do. Why did you hit the self-destruct button? Yes. Carson Wentz hit the self-destruct button in Week 18, shamefully. That was and bad. Ben Roethlisberger hit the self-destruct button, the self-retire button, in week one of the playoffs, the reason why it was a shame to see the Steelers in the playoffs was because they can't string together wins because Ben Roethlisberger can't string together good games. He can't even string together good halves. Like He can give you a good quarter here and there, but when your body is that broken, 
you could only summon it very inconsistently. And so there was no way he could string together a bunch of games in a row to make the Super Bowl. It was it was never going to happen. So at least give the Chargers a chance to make a run. You know if the Chargers got hot, they could make a run. They could beat anybody in the league. Yeah. I mean, look, there, there are two... The the seventh team right now, the, the addition of that seven seed, is being questioned by a lot of people. But if you look at who potentially could have gotten in, if yeah. they had just handled their business. Yeah, I like the seventh seed. I like playoff football. Like, I don't think that the seventh seed itself is a bad idea. I think the teams that we got this year were a bad idea. You know, it's not it's, you can't just change it as you see fit to get the teams that you want in in. And that's the part that sucks. And the structure is so much better because in no way does a two-seed deserve a bye. The whole point of the regular season is that if you are the best, right? Because there used to be no playoffs. It used to be many, many, many years ago, you just played the regular season, and whoever had the best record in the regular season in the AFL was the champion. And that was it. There was no playoffs, right? So at least if you're going to go out and you're going to put up the best record, you should have some reward. Not you have the best record and get a reward, but also the guy that was second best, oh, he gets the same reward. That never made any sense to me. This is much better. You need to be the best in your conference, and you get the buy. That just makes perfect sense to me. So on a lot of levels, I like this structure. It helps a Chargers team make it in and potentially make a run. Unfortunately, they didn't fucking make it in. It's just it's it, it's infuriating. But what's interesting is I look up and the Chargers, of all teams, right? this is one of the talent-rich franchises in the league, are number one in salary cap space heading into 2022. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. How the hell they do that? Well, so the, there are multiple ways you can calculate like effective cap space that are left. It's them in Miami, 1-2 in whatever order you want to do, whether it's top 51, effective, whatever it is. But I think a big part of it is like, What's top 51? Top 51 just calculates between the amount of contracts you have left on your books for a given year and the amount of money it would take to just fill out your roster to the top 51 with essentially average veterans that would, you know, go across the books just so that you know what essentially given your major contracts, a 51 man roster would cost you. Um, There are several ways that you can kind of calculate it. That's why you'll see different numbers here and there about what metrics people are using. But essentially, the Dolphins and the Chargers have a whole lot of money to burn. Interesting. Okay, so what do you want them to do this offseason? What moves should they make? I think the biggest question marks that I have on their roster really are uh, depth in the secondary and then linebacker, right? And obviously, if you want to draft an O-lineman, if you want to go get somebody that's a veteran, that's fine. Um, Potentially, Mike Williams, we're going to try and figure out what to do with him. Um, Jared Cook is ancient at this point um, I'm not even I can't even remember if I, th- I believe he's still there but I, I could be wrong he's there yeah he's their starting tight end they have behind him they have Donald Parham and Trey McKitty and I like both of them like as developmental prospects but if you find somebody right like that that market for tight ends um, if you let a Hunter Hendry go right you've got to kind of Will the Browns move off of one of Hooper and Joku? Could you go get them at a value potentially? Will, you know, 
what will happen in the tight end market, I would look to see if you could do something there. And then potentially you're re-signing Mike Williams, right? Because, I mean, if you have the space to do it, you know how much Herbert loves him. They already have that chemistry, and you've got, you know, this massive big playability that he's flashed over and over and over again in his career. The past couple years, he's finally put it all together where you have a fairly complete wide receiver that you feel comfortable paying money to. It's just going to depend on what they want from his, what his agent wants. So they're going to re-sign him. They have the first or second most salary cap space. That's why I'm so certain that Mike Williams will be a charger next season. Yeah. The, uh, the Eagles dream is probably dead. <laughs> The Eagles' dream for Mike Williams is probably dead. Yeah, they're going to have to go after Gallup and hope that he heals up from the torn ACL. Late career, late season, torn ACL. Oh, God. Oh, God. If you tear your ACL in, in December, look how look how many years it took Rashad Penny to come back. Two and a half years, man. Because then what happens is you try to rush back so you can at least be ready for the start of the season. You can't do it. And then you have some complication and you have to go back in for revision, which is what Rashad Penny had to do. So as soon as you have to go back in for revision, Sony Michelle, same thing. Both of these guys lost multiple seasons. And then they come back after they're finally able to have the time to heal properly. And no surprise, they look like themselves at age 26. It's like, where was this guy three years ago? He was there all along, but he's rehabbing and then having to reset the rehab. Yeah. It takes a long time. Like, I think... The one of the things that we kind of underestimate, right, is Joe Burrow is not really running around a ton on, you know, the ACL that was torn last year and that he had time to rehab in the offseason and do all of the stuff that he needed to do. Whereas if you're a running back, especially right, someone's going to usurp you on that depth chart. And if they seize hold of that backfield, they're just they're going to take it right. Like That's right. we all love Raheem Mostert, love Trey Sermon, Elijah Mitchell week three. Took ran away with this backfield, and suddenly now you're realizing, oh shit, if I don't get back out there as soon as possible, not only is my team going to forget about me, but no one else is going to invest themselves in my rehab. And it's not just the season. It's to get back out there and practice. It's but that, you know, training camp, preseason. They feel the pressure. They feel the pressure. I mean, you could argue that Chris Carson and Damian Harris contributed to the delayed resurgence of Penny and Michelle. They felt the pressure. I mean, especially Penny with Chris Carson. They're like, yeah, oh, Chris Carson's the man. Sorry, buddy. If somebody looks that good in game, it's hard to give you a job based on practice. You know, like, and and, and it sucks that it is that way, but that's what it is, right? Like, it, it it's, you're going to get limited opportunities, and especially when you're playing not 100% and you're worried about, overcorrecting or trying to do too much. That's when you get drops and fumbles and, you know, you miss lanes. It, it's just, it's not pretty. It's not pretty when you're trying to massively overcompensate for something that, you know, you've had forever, right? Like we talk about running backs in that, in that, that have had ACL problems. I mean, Rashad Penny was unbelievable in college. Like nobody was saying, oh, this is a bad draft pick. Now, should he have been taken bottom of round one? We can argue that forever. But nobody was like, oh, this dude can't play. No one should be drafting a running back unless it's like a Saquon Barkley in the first round. And then it would be late first round. Saquon Barkley should have been drafted in the 20s. Christian McCaffrey in the 20s. Penny, pff, you know, second, third round. Because he went to San Diego State. 
So yeah, you can go ahead and post seven plus yards per carry two consecutive seasons, but it was in the mountain whack, right? Come on now. Come on now. And, and I'm looking at the Chargers. Tight end is a need. I think I agree. Tight, they have few needs. One of their few needs is tight end. They need to invest in tight end. And do you know who just serendipitously had a career year was the number three fantasy scorer at tight end this year, and he's going to be a free agent. Do you know who it is? I do not. Guess. Who do I get? Render a guess, bro. Breakout season at tight end. Breakout. Big time breakout. Surprising breakout. Surprising breakout. I'm trying to... Unrestricted free agent in 2022. I... Wild... I'm completely blanking on tight ends that exist right now. He has a last name for a first name. Why am I blinking so hard right now? Dalton Schultz. Oh. Oh, yeah. He was great this year. Dalton Schultz. 808 receiving yards. Eight touchdowns. Woo! Right? Number five in fantasy points a game. Number three in total fantasy points. And yet, he's not physically impressive. He's undersized. He's a move tight end. But in that offense, where they 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 have to do they do a lot of shifting. We had Austin Eckler on the show. He talked about their offense being complicated, where they, they, they run, a, run a lot of motion, a lot of shifting. That's why they have illegal shifts, illegal motions, offsides, especially in the red zone, inside the 20, gets louder, it gets pressurized, and the Chargers were near the top of the league in penalties in that area of the field, and that arguably cost them a playoff berth. You could say, well, maybe they should have had a simpler offense. They had a simpler offense. Maybe they, they make the playoffs. Maybe they were doing too much. But what we've seen is the analytics suggest that the better offenses run more motion. So I, I, I think that the Chargers also have an enlightened play calling in that they're leaning pass first, they run with fast pace, and they run a lot of motion. So they check all those boxes for enlightened offensive scheme and play calling. The problem is Dalton Schultz is coming off a career year. You're paying full freight on a Dalton Schultz, and you're getting a, a lower ceiling than if you were to go and sign a David Njoku. Yeah. Understanding that Dalton Schultz had a better year than David Njoku's ever had in the NFL, but David Njoku was a premium prospect. Schultz was a fourth-round pick. Who do you think is going to command a bigger contract? I would assume that between the two, um, it entirely depends on your team, but I think that, that Schultz would command just barely bigger I think they're probably in that same range. Um, I don't think either of them are going to approach uh, Hunter Henry money or Austin Hooper money, really. like it, It's just, unless you desperately need tight end like the Chargers do. You can't make that Austin Hooper mistake with Dalton Schultz, right? Austin Hooper benefited from injuries to the Atlanta receiving core, and he just happened to be on one of the most pass-first, pass-friendly prolific offenses in the league so of course he's going to post lots of yards and be yeah. near the top of the league in fantasy scoring which he was the year before free agency so Dalton Schultz had an Austin Hooper like contract year but you can't be the NFL team that goes out and overpays for Dalton Schultz I yep. would try to get David Njoku because in the context of that offense knowing how successful Jared Cook was like Jared Cook was a playmaker in the context of this Chargers offense, mm -hmm. where in previous destinations, you know he was hit or miss. It, when you tethered him to an Aaron Rodgers, he was productive. When you tether him to a Justin Herbert, 
he's productive. When he's on the Rams, he's running for a touchdown and getting the ball poked away at the one-yard line. Remember that play? Yes, I do. Yeah, that was embarrassing. So he's had some embarrassing drops, embarrassing mental mistakes, and so has David Njoku. He doesn't have great hands, but he does have great yards after the catch. Top five in yards after the catch per target. That's something that Dalton Schultz can't say. No. Because at the tight end position, we put a super premium on athleticism. From Gronk to Kelsey to Kittle to Pitts, these are the best athletes at the position. That's the the red flag on the Dalton Schultz profile are the workout metrics. You don't want to overpay for that guy because like Austin Hooper, he just found himself in the center of a target vacuum where Blake Jarwin's out most of the year. Michael Gallup's out most of the year. CeeDee Lamb was hobbled in the second half of the year. Amari Cooper had one of the more serious experiences with COVID-19. So on a lot of levels, it's a stay away for me in free agency. Whereas David Njoku, woo, right? This guy is a yards after the catch monster, was in college, had a season, and this isn't a typo, this isn't fake, this is real. 10 plus yards after the catch per reception. That's insane. <laughs> at Miami, which isn't even possible. Like, that's like a riddle how that even happens. Yeah. But it did happen. It's true. It's a true stat. It's a real, true, non-fake stat. And I'm still a believer. Um, oh, me too. He also has these ceiling outcomes where you look, he's the most volatile tight end in the league, where he's going up and putting out 160 yards and then 13 and then five and then 80. And it's like, well, what's going on? Well, well part of it's the Browns offense. Part of it's the, just he is an inconsistent player. He has inconsistent hands in particular. But in the context of this Chargers offense, I think that he would thrive. I agree. I I, I really like that fit. I think they should go throw a little bit of their available money at him and see what happens. But the other thing that popped into my mind immediately was the Chargers run defense this year was god awful. Just terrible. As bad as as bad as you could ever hope from a team with a ceiling like theirs. And I think round one, send in the draft card now if he's there. Don't even bother Jordan Davis out of Georgia. Ah, I mean yes. just send in the card now. Don't he should start looking for property in Los Angeles now. Don't even bother. Think they'll get him? I hope so. It's going to be close. Late teens. The problem is he's been so dominant, right? It's just it's not the most valuable position in the world, but that kind of dominance is going to push anybody up a draft board. So yeah, they must have been sad to see Vita Vea get extended. Oh my God, they were you probably know. devastated. He was the twelfth pick, right? So Vita, I think Vita, if you're going to try to benchmark, you know, elite tackle prospects. Vita Vea is, is, is the standard 12th pick. That's where they should go. Interior defensive linemen, interior offensive linemen, the best interior linemen should go in the teens. Vita Vea was the reason why the Buccaneers had the best run defense in the league. Now, I would argue that you don't necessarily want the best run defense because then you, inf you know, incentivize the opponent to throw. Yeah. Where I, I think you want to sag a little bit in the interior and, and say, come on, run the ball. Run the ball up the middle. Come on, up the middle run. Let's go. Come on, you can do it. Run up the middle. Come on. Come on. Let's go. You know you want to do it. You want to hand it off. I know you do. Offensive coordinator, you're dying to hand it off. You know that the analytics say to throw, but you, you want to do it. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. The problem is that Vita Vea is like, okay, we're not going to run against this team. We better throw. So I don't 
think a team should ever aspire to have a top five run defense, but you also can't have a bottom five run defense either. I think you want to be in the middle. Your run defense should be ranked number 15 in the league. I would prefer, personally, to have a, a defense that's closer to that top five in run defense. And the reason that I say that is so much of the— if, if you get into shootouts, right, if you play good teams, you need to know that on fourth and one, Tampa's going to sneak Brady. Right, and, and if you don't have a guy that's going to stop that, it's auto-conversion every single time. And it's been that his entire life. Listen, man, if you're drafting a player in the mid-first round to stop the QB sneak, you're focused on the wrong details, Anand. It's not just that. Come on! It's that he changes life for that run defense. Is there another really- interior defensive lineman that they could draft if their first choice is off the board? DeMarvin Leal, A&M, is another good one. Ooh, there you go. Yeah. There you go. They got to draft somebody. I mean, they're stockpiled with talent, but they got to draft somebody. Might as well be interior defensive line. And the reason why I like that pick is because those guys can play right away. Yeah. Those guys, as long as they have the physical skills, it's not one of those positions where you need to be a technician. Just go in there and cause havoc. Just be a space filling monster. You just need to be dirty and grimy and give no shits whatsoever. It's a great. It's it. That's a football guy's football guy yeah. position. Is defense. Those guys tackle. shart during the game. They don't even care. Oh yeah, they're, they're, they're proud they're... of it. Absolute wild. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Crazy. And I mean, I would love to see either of them play for the Chargers, just because I think that would completely change life on how you would have to attack that front seven. And I mean, look, they've got athletes everywhere. I know. I know everywhere on. I'm already see. See what I'm doing? See, it's mid January, and I'm already teeing up my Chargers Super Bowl takes. You can see it's already we're we're building the ramp, right? I'm such a raging Chargers fan. Have been for years too. I mean, it's not like they've lacked talent in years past. It's just they did like as good as Philip Rivers was. He's not Justin Herbert. I'm not sure anybody is. My my family has roots in San Diego. There you go. I went to a Chargers game when I was a kid. My, 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 my dad's brothers and sisters all moved to San Diego because one of his brothers was stationed out there in the Navy. And then the sister went out there and said, oh, yeah, maybe you can help me you know, get a foothold, find an apartment. And then the next one came out. And then suddenly we had a, we had a whole family out there. You know, We had a whole extended family. So I, I would go out there. And when I was a kid, I had a teddy bear with a Chargers helmet. I had one of those Chargers pennants. Right now, I, I was in New England, so we were Patriots fans, but it was my other team. It was my other like side team. Yeah, you, everybody needs a side team, just the team that you that you have fun cheering for, and you just hope does well. Right, and then I fell in love with Randall Cunningham, just watching him. Then I then I had another side team. I, I got an Eagles starter jacket. <laughs> right, so I had another side team. I just been building side teams. Yeah, and now we love the Vikings and their whole process. So we've just been building and building. And now we see, uh uh-oh, no Rick Spielman. Rick Spielman canned. And that one blew my hair back. I have to say, that was like, that was the, I mean, it's not shocking when, you know, Carolina lets go of their general manager and Dave Gettleman retires. Of course, we know this was happening. I mean, I'm still shocked that Matt Rule is the head coach of Carolina. I'm like, what, what is going on? I have no idea what David that Tepper. Is. I mean, you're supposed Yikes. to be cutthroat Wall Street guy. What are you waiting for? 
What are you waiting for, Tepper? I don't Come know. Come on, Tep. Let's go. Get, get, the, no get the hatchet idea. out. What are you waiting for? So, instead, they, the Vikings just killed the Golden Goose, right? And the thing with Rick Spielman is he came into the league not knowing what the fuck he was doing as a general manager. And he would admit this. He made a lot of mistakes. I heard him on the Move the Sticks podcast this week. You should listen to it. It's fascinating. And he admits that he, he didn't know what to focus on early. He was improvising, faking it till he made it, and then he made it. And then over time, he developed all this institutional knowledge, created all these systems, processes, and procedures to build a successful franchise. And, and once he's achieved this, once he's built the sandcastle, like a wave comes, just wipes it out, and he's gone. It's, it was sad. It was sad to see that because it's like his life's work. And then you just had this, this season where they were ravaged by injuries. They were teed up to make a run, and then nothing. Yep. And I think his he would he would acknowledge this himself. His two biggest flaws were evaluating offensive linemen and evaluating quarterbacks, right? And you've got to know what you don't do well. And I think that self-scouting process really manifests itself when you're ready to say, okay, I just can't do this. Because every GM is going to have something that they're not great at. And what you're not great at, you're going to have to give off some of your power to somebody that does it well, right? For example, if you have issues, if you're New England having issues drafting wide receivers, go get someone from Pittsburgh that's evaluated all of these wide receivers and hit over and over and over and over and over again and empower them to make those decisions to say, hey, if we're going to take a wide receiver, it's that guy. Well, well... I would say yes, because of the success that Pittsburgh has had with Heinz Ward all the way through to Deontay Johnson. It's been incredible. It's been incredible. But you could argue that Pittsburgh will look back in four years at the Chase Claypool pick as a mistake after what was just an exceptional rookie season, double-digit touchdowns, highlight reel plays week after week. The dude had a four-touchdown game, dude. Yeah, it was nuts. Four touchdown game, dude. Yeah. Wow. Right? That That's rare. Most wide receivers will never do that. Even some of the best. Never done it. Chase Claypool's done that. He has that accomplishment. Yeah. But Chase Claypool has become famously immature. If you had to pick the top five most immature wide receivers in the league, just based on media reports, based on nothing other than beat report, blog posts, it would be Chase Claypool in the top five. And what Rick Spielman shared on this Moves the Six podcast was that wide receiver is one of the trickiest to scout. And that's because a lot of the traditional metrics and data points you look for don't apply to wide receivers. And see, we know this, right? We know this. We know that athleticism is much more predictive for running backs than it is wide receivers, which is why on the Breakout Finder app, where we predict breakouts based on all the data that we have, the certainty we have that a Najee Harris or a Javante Williams will break out is orders of magnitude higher than any given wide receiver. Yeah. We just don't have as much predictive data points. The signal and all the signals that we have on wide receivers from their performance in college, their height, their weight, their combine performance, the athleticism measurables, it's just not as strong of a signal. The running back right. signal is much stronger, especially the data point that matters most for running backs is draft capital. 
If you're a first-round running back, you're almost guaranteed to hit, and it, it, it's inevitable. Even Rashad Penny, just wait. Yeah. Sony Michelle, just wait. They'll hit eventually. Just wait. You, you, you let their knees get healed up finally. Just, just, they'll, they'll make it. First-round pick, they'll, they'll hit. Josh Jacobs, not an impressive prospect in any way. Drafted in the first round. All he does is deliver 1,000-yard seasons. Yep. And one of the things that I will say, especially about wide receiver play that's tricky, right, is you have your Hunter Renfros of the world that are just productive. You watch them at the college level. You know Alabama's got a a wheelhouse of first-round DBs everywhere, and he's beating them, right? That's where the evaluation is difficult. Is he doing this because Deshaun Watson is his quarterback, because he's got all of these five-star athletes on his team, or is it or is he really that good, right? That's why the 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 Jefferson and the Chase evals are easy. He's roasting D1 corners every single week, every day at practice. Every time you see him out on the field, those are the easy evaluations, right? Those are the can't miss guys. Right. That's why the Big 12 wide receivers are a bit tricky. Yeah, that's why it's tough, right? Because the the cornerbacks in the Big 12 are famously inferior. I don't know why they can't recruit corners in the Big 12, but they they have they have issues. That's why we love Traylon Burks. Like every week that dude was doing circus-like things to NFL DBs every single week. We have no worries whatsoever that he's going to be good in the NFL. Will he reach his ceiling? I don't know, but he's going to be good. He's not going to bust. Well, he could bust. Oh, come on. <laughs> what I'm saying is the probability is going to be very high that he breaks out, but even the top wide receiver prospects, they're not going to have a breakout rating higher than 70. There's always going to be that 30% chance they bust. Now, well, because even some of the best wide receiver prospects did not fire in the NFL. It's just, what's the reason? And Rick Spielman illuminated this on this Move the Sticks podcast. He said, you might be surprised but the three biggest indicators for us, and this is the team that drafted Stephon Diggs, that signed and developed Adam Thielen, and then had the confidence to trade Diggs, knowing they could backfill him with Justin Jefferson. If there was a team in the NFL that is even better at scouting wide receivers than the Pittsburgh Steelers, it would be the Minnesota Vikings with Rick Spielman. And Rick Spielman's ability to scout wide receivers in and of itself by itself, should be enough reason for him to be an NFL GM because he's able to source one of the most difficult positions to scout in the NFL successfully. That Just that accomplishment alone, just that trait in an NFL GM is hugely valuable. And he said the three traits they look at first and foremost with wide receivers are coachability, work ethic, and social maturity. Now, those are all linked together. Those are psychological traits. And they have developed over time in Minnesota one of the most comprehensive and thorough psychological evaluations of players. And what he explained was, with some positions, like interior defensive tackle, there's a completely different set of psychological traits that you're looking for as opposed to a wide receiver. In fact... Wide receiver and center are more similar than, say, defensive tackle. Well, we talked about this. Defensive tackle, you just need to be mean. Yep. If you have some off-the-field issues with defensive tackle, that may actually be a buying signal. <laughs> right? Like, if this guy's in a bar fight, we probably want him on the defensive line. <laughs> yeah. If a wide receiver's in a bar fight, he is a do-not-draft. You would never touch him. 
Yeah. You would never touch him. All those off the field issues. Remember Corey Coleman? Mm hmm. All these guys with the never fire in the NFL, even if they're impressive athletes with wow factor catches at the college level. That was Corey Coleman. Yeah. But, but, but he did not have the coachability, the work ethic, the social maturity. And think about when Corey Coleman got drafted. He got drafted by the Browns when they were just standing up their analytics-centric front office. And it makes sense that they would have focused on the wrong details. They would have drafted Corey Coleman based on what is generally the traits you want in an NFL prospect instead of understanding that wide receiver is unique yeah. among NFL wide receiver positions. If other positions, you can map them to like a square pattern or a circle pattern, the wide receiver position is like a star pattern. It's a much more complicated shape that you would have to draw in order to zero in on the highest probability of breaking out. And and that over time, you learn this. Of course, in the first couple of years, standing up an analytics-focused front office, Cleveland's not going to be able to do that. No. They're going to get fooled by a Corey Coleman. You need that experience. You need to be in the job for many years to yep. understand where your gaps in understanding are. And you give Rick Spielman time to get ramped up, time to learn, time to make mistakes. Next thing you know, it's just hit after hit after hit after hit at the wide receiver position. And in week 18, who had over 100 yards? K.J. Osborne. No. Fifth round pick, Amir Smith-Marset from Iowa. Oh, ISM. I love him, too. Love him, too. From Iowa. K.J. Osborne greatly exceeded everyone's expectations as a day three pick, special team ace from Miami. Something about his psychological profile made the Minnesota Vikings believe that he had what it takes to become a craftsman, a technician at the wide receiver position in the NFL, and that's what they value most. And my guess is that the majority of NFL teams around the league, they're still doing it the old way. Yeah. I mean, it's the other thing, too, that you've got to consider is who the person in charge of hiring the GM is going to be. Are they old school? Do they want someone like Tom Coughlin that's going to sit there, establish rules, not let anybody have any fun, and try to do things like it's 1970? Or are they going to empower somebody that's thinking into the 2030s and beyond, saying, hey, let's be the first to try this instead of the last to adopt it? And I think that that, like the balance between, hey, these are the things that we've historically known work, and let's break through this barrier and be the first to try something is important to understand when you're taking that kind of a job or when you're looking at that kind of a franchise, right? Like Minnesota was willing to say, Hey Rick, do what you need to do. What we've done here historically hasn't worked. And I think that most people would say his time in Minnesota was relatively successful. They didn't get their Super Bowl, but a lot of that has to do with very, very weird playoff outcomes that you really can't predict. In a single elimination tournament, the best team does not always win, right? Uh, I I believe it was uh, somebody on Twitter posted this probably six months ago. I'll go back and find it and try to retweet it after this. But they went through and allocated based on what teams should win every single year analytically. This is the team that should win a Super Bowl. It's very rare that the team that is best in any given year actually wins their Super Bowl. 
they more than likely win a Super Bowl in a three-year window that's not theirs, if that makes sense. Makes perfect sense. It makes It's interesting to watch because it's not a seven-game series like the NBA. Now, look at a player like Daniil Hunter. Before that, look at Christian Derrissaw. Christian Derrissaw, one of the best draft picks from 2021, one of the best rookie tackles in the league. So this was a weakness, a historic weakness, that Rick Spielman would admit to, and yet we look up and he hit on a tackle in the mid-first round, which is what you're trying to do, right? If you don't have a top-10 pick, you don't have access to Penny Sewell, great, no, fine, right? Maybe, maybe you get super lucky like the Chargers and a Rashawn Slater falls to you. If that doesn't happen, then, then, see, then you have to start making tough decisions. And you could be the Raiders and pick Alex Leatherwood, which was a bad pick. Or you could go with a smaller school player who has a much more impressive profile and is simply just a better player in Christian Derrissaw, and that's what Rick Spielman did. He avoided the mistake made by the Raiders. I mean, just another proof point in his abilities as a front office executive. Daniil Hunter was a third rounder. But what did Daniil Hunter have as an edge rusher that you need, you absolutely need? We talked about it with tight end. What do you need? Athleticism. Daniil Hunter, what did he bring to the table? He didn't bring to the table big sack numbers, big tackles for loss, but he was an exceptional athlete, ran a 4.57 at 250 pounds. <laughs> okay? Okay? Oh, my God. He wasn't 250 when he got drafted. Okay, he was probably 240, 235. Still. But they knew he had a 6'5 frame and that he could get up to 250 eventually. And he did. He had 90-plus percentile speed, burst, agility. And he was only falling into day three and into the third round because he didn't have the production. So, again, you look position by position. Here's Rick Spielman focusing on the right details over and over and over and over again. And look at the undrafted players they're bringing in, not just Adam Thielen. Look who their tight end was. They lose their tight end, Irv Smith. Tyler Conklin was impressive this year. He wasn't Dalton Schultz-level impressive, but that was another small school player he that play. has well above average athleticism, and he's super versatile, and turns out he's good. He's good at football. Yeah, I mean, the evaluations on, like, a Kayvon Thibodeau are not difficult. You turn it on, and you're like, oh, my God, that guy can play. Now, try to find me an edge rusher in the middle of the late first round that is equally, if not more, productive than a guy that's an easy first round home, you know, top five pick hit is going to be really, really tough. 34 and a quarter inch arms. Jeez. <laughs> that's 78th percentile. Okay. Yeah. Wingspan, everything. Guy's a monster. Just let him develop. It could take years. Age 27, the guy breaks out all over the place. And you could argue that the loss of Danil Hunter cost them a playoff berth. Yeah. I mean, he's a huge part of what they do. And a missed field goal against the Lions. That didn't, that didn't help. Yeah, that didn't help. That didn't, that didn't help either. <laughs> so it's just fascinating to hear Rick Spielman talk about his process and didn't agree with everything he had to say. Certainly fall back into some of the, the cliches that so many football analysts fall into, you know, uh, the ability to be clutch and all these things. Like, he, he's, he's, he's still a human being, and he's still surrounded by football people that believe all these things that have been talked about 
for decades and decades. So he's not going to deprogram himself from all the trappings, but he did a pretty damn good job in taking a step back and focusing on what matters position by position, having a completely different evaluation structure for centers versus tackles versus defensive linemen versus wide receivers. That was the biggest takeaway. The final thing that he that he mentioned, which I thought was interesting, is understanding how your current personnel can dictate who you draft. So, for example, if you have a mobile quarterback, you can de-emphasize interior offensive line because they don't necessarily need to step up to throw. But if you have a Tom Brady, is the best example, there's a reason why the Buccaneers have one of, if not the best, interior offensive line. And you could argue that Tom Brady's a genius, that he chose the Buccaneers knowing this. It could have been luck, but I believe in Brady's analytical ability. There's no one that's more detail-obsessed than that man. So I highly doubt it was just an afterthought. I have to think that he looked at their interior offensive line and thought, wow, this is going to be a great fit for me and my ability to step up in the pocket. Yeah, no doubt. Fascinating stuff. And, you know, the listeners really want us to adopt a team in 2022 and pantomime the moves that we would make as if we were them. Okay. And I think we should. And I think the team is obvious. The team that we should adopt is obvious. It's the team that needs a complete and utter rebuild that is starting at ground zero. And that is the New York Giants. And if we were buying the New York Giants, let's say that we were given $100 billion, Let's just say $100 billion Because we can't spend it all on the team. Right? We need to buy yachts. We need to buy... We're spending it all on the team, Matt. <laughs> no, we need, to, we need to buy houses and yachts and everything else. So let's say we have $100 billion. I don't even know. Is that a real number? Does, how much does... Uh, Bezos has like 200 something. So I, I think Bezos has like 200. But yeah, so that's, that's yeah. realistic, right? That's totally realistic. We would have $100 billion. Sure. Super realistic. So let's say we have... And we make an offer that the Maras and the Tishes can't refuse. Because it's co-owned, right? The, the Giants are co-owned by the Maras and the Tishes. Yep. As far as I'm aware, yeah. And the Maras have the operating control. Yep. Which helps to explain... Their failings, the, the ineptitude of the Giants, can be traced back to a co-ownership structure. Very few co-ownerships work out. You, you look at startups back through time. Typically, the one of the two co-founders is pushed out within the first couple of years because it's just not working. The the co-leadership doesn't work. Every time you have try a co-CEO, it's always a disaster. Citigroup, famously. You know, Jamie Dimon won that that power play, and he's gone on to be uh, one of the most uh, successful executives in corporate American history. I have to go back to Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus in the Roman Empire to find a truly successful co-leader structure where if you told me that there was a co-emperor, right, just knowing nothing about Marcus Aurelius, and I told you, oh, there, there was... There was one at one time there were co-emperors and then uh, Lucius Verus died before the age of 40. What do you think the probability would be that he was poisoned or killed by the Praetorian Guard? Strong, right? Like probably like you'd say, oh, 99% chance, right? This guy was stabbed by a senator loyal to Aurelius or he, the guards took him into the dungeon and, and, and killed him or, you know, he, he ate something bad. And it was over. 
No, actually, he died of natural causes. He died of smallpox, and he famously had a great relationship with Marcus Aurelius and was one of the most successful reigns by any emperor ever. And for a significant portion of that Marcus Aurelius reign, it was it, they were, they were co-emperor. That's how far back you have to go yeah. to the year 160. Yeah, and Matt, look at when the Giants have worked, right? When they've put Super Bowl-caliber teams out there and won championships, what have they had? It's not the ownership that, that really made those moves. It's you have to have an absolutely dominant personality that overarches even over the owners. A Tom Coughlin, that it's my way or the highway. Or a Bill Belichick and a Bill Parcells, where it's my way or the highway. That's kind of historically how they've worked, right? It's if you give, if you empower someone to go even over ownership to the point where they are the primary focus of your franchise. Everything good was on Coughlin. Everything bad was on Coughlin. Everything good, Parcells. And and look, like that's just historically how they've done things. One of the great injustices in the history of the NFL is that Tom Coughlin has two Super Bowls. <laughs> The players love him. It's crazy. The Giants players love him. The Jacks players do not even a little bit. And it's just wild, right? Because, I mean, it, it, it's one of those things where winning solves all. I mean, what? Yeah, I don't either. I don't get it either. One of the best throws of all time, Eli Manning to Mario Manningham along the sideline. That is in my top five. Easy. And then some random guy threw a ball that was covered in glue and stuck to a guy's helmet. David Tyree. So... What an- I'm looking at the organizational chart for the okay. Giants, and no general manager. Yeah, obviously. We've <laughs> not hired anybody. I think we would agree the general manager should be Rick Spielman. Yeah. I would love to see what he can do with this team. I agree. What are just a couple moves you would try to make right away with the Giants? I think the first thing that you've got to establish, and talk to any GM ever, and the very first thing that I would do is find – the head coach of the future and figure out if and when we need a quarterback is Daniel. Is there anything left in Daniel Jones? Was he completely mismanaged? Was he a waste of time? We need to do that. Now. The reason we need to do that now is the draft is three months away. Like we need to know tomorrow. If there's anything to be coached out of Daniel Jones, is there something there? Right. Anand, close your eyes. Okay. Close your eyes. Can you, Imagine a world where the Giants are winning games, they're making the playoffs, with Daniel Jones at the helm. No. No. You can't imagine it, right? It's not possible. It's just not possible because we've seen too many of these movies and how they end. Daniel Jones can only succeed on one of the other 31 franchises. It's over for him in New York. It can't happen. It won't happen. It's not possible. It's just not possible. Same with Sam Darnold. It was never going to happen with the Jets. We now know it's never going to happen, period. <laughs> yeah. But there was some glimmer of hope that maybe something could happen with him on Carolina. No good. Right? Yeah. That's the only hope. And knowing that, you're doing a service to your team that you're going to be in a multi-year rebuild. And the player, by trading him, by giving him up and just getting whatever you can get back to facilitate and expedite the rebuild. They have to do it. Yeah, I I would move on. That's my personal opinion. But obviously, you're you're obviously going to try and figure out what your head coach thinks of him. Someone's going to give you something for him. We know that the 2022 rookie quarterback class 
is mostly game managers and developmental QBs. That's the profile of the 2022 quarterback class. Yep. And there are a number of teams that are built to win now that need quarterbacks. We've talked about them on this show on a loop. It's Pittsburgh. It's Denver. There's a number of teams that would be in the market for a Daniel Jones. Yeah, if you can move on from him for anything. He will command assets in return. Think about it. The Colts are going to give up a first-round pick to the Eagles. And what they get in return? Carson Wentz. What's the big difference between Carson Wentz and Daniel Jones? It's a valid point. Carson Wentz at least was on an MVP trajectory for one year with a much better supporting cast. You can't really even compare their careers because when Carson Wentz was in Philadelphia, remember they had one of, if not the best offensive line, a well above average wide receiver core. Yep. Prime Zach Ertz. And it was an offense that Nick Foles was able to captain to a championship. Yep. Daniel Jones hasn't had anything close to that. No. In New York. But no. coming out, these were similar prospects where the, the number one trait that Carson Wentz had on his profile was arm strength, and that was Daniel Jones. The guy can really spin it, right? And, and they both had functional mobility and a deep ball. And, and, that was, and, and, and it's been pounded out of them, the deep ball especially, where now Carson Wentz and Daniel Jones are more likely to keep it in the short intermediate quadrants of the field, but that wasn't always the case. I remember the Carson Wentz combine. Yeah. All the oohs and ahs. Right? Oh, wow. Right? So that would be, I think, move number one, bring in Spielman. You. Move number two, Spielman trades Daniel Jones to the highest bidder. You try to trade Saquon Barkley because yeah. he is a running back. And that's just not moving the needle, helping your team win games. That The position is generally overvalued. That's changing around the NFL. But don't forget, last year we still had two teams drafting running backs in the first round. So knowing that, you can probably put Saquon Barkley on the block and get something back in return as well. Yeah. He has a first-round pick. He has the fifth-year option. That might be attractive to somebody. You might be able to get something back. I don't know what you could get back for Saquon Barkley. Second yep. round pick, maybe third round pick. I don't know. I don't know. I have no. I I, I have no idea. That's probably the, the hardest thing to evaluate is what because it's changing every year. What NFL teams would pay to acquire a Saquon Barkley? I have no idea. The, the, you you may call thirty one teams and they all hang up on you because like oh running back click running back click. Yeah, I have no idea what the value is. But the hope is that there's at least one or two that would have that conversation with you. Say, you know what? That is our greatest weakness. We really need something. Maybe somehow, some way, Steve Keem thinks that that was the big weakness. That was the reason why they couldn't beat the Rams. They need a running back. You know, James Conner doesn't have the juice. Chase Edmonds isn't durable enough. We need, we need, a, we need a, a game-breaking running back. Maybe, maybe Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Who the hell knows? Yeah. But you could just put put feelers out there. I think those would be the, my two top priorities is get 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 those guys out of here knowing that you're saddled with it's unfortunate, but you're saddled with Kenny Galladay. That that's a contract that's completely immovable. Uh and also don't forget to let Evan Ingram walk. So it's it's actually not that difficult to envision 
how you could tear this franchise down to the studs and start building it back. Yeah. You want to build back better. Yeah. That would be a good slogan, don't you think? That could be our slogan for the Giants, build back better. That's his, that's his ring to it. That sounds really good. I can't believe I'm the first person to think of that. I was going to say, I like it. I think it's got a great ring to it. I'm sure it's, that slogan must have been used somewhere else by, you know, maybe a construction company or something. And then go find your quarterback. <laughs> and I love alliteration. But but a three-word alliteration? Build back better? That's amazing. So, yeah. Evan Ingram, unrestricted free agent, goodbye. And then you just start building. I mean, there's, there's so few assets on this team. And we'll get into it as we discuss the Giants and the moves we would make. Andrew Thomas. I mean, there's just so few assets that you would want to build around. James Bradbury, there's like there's a couple, but James Bradbury's getting older. We'll have to assess James Bradbury. Maybe James Bradbury's at an age where when you look at his window of top-level performance, that it doesn't align with the team's future competition window. Right? Like we want to be able to compete in 2024. Well, how old is James Bradbury going to be in 2024? If he's 28 oh. now. In 2024, he's going to be 31-32. It's a tough sell. So maybe you get what you can for James Bradbury. Maybe he's a sell-high candidate. Where you That might be the, the player where you get by far and away the most back in return because he's one of the best corners in the league. And to a contender, to have him for his age 28 season, that would be incredibly valuable. I think so, too. That's part of the process. Wow, we really get into the Giants. I wasn't expecting to get into the Giants so much, but I just I love this thought experiment of how we would rebuild the Giants. I'll get you out of here. Who do you see facing off in the Super Bowl? I've got uh, I had Chiefs Packers before the season. I'll stick with it. Um, give me Green Bay to win it all. But there is not a Super Bowl matchup you could make with these final eight teams that would surprise me. What when you get. When you get down this what? low, yeah, nothing would surprise me. So you're admitting to being anchored to your earlier take. You're just fucking anchored, dude. How the hell, how the hell can you watch the Bills dismantle the Patriots and not get on that Bills bandwagon? I love the Bills. I, I'm on it, man. And I love the idea of a bandwagon. I know it's a cliche, but I love the idea of a bandwagon where you put the band on the wagon and then you have a tuba and you have trumpets and you have... Even maybe, uh, you know, the woodwind section and you're just riding around town with this band. Like you've been to New Orleans. Oh, yeah. Right. You've been to New Orleans and you're you're in your Airbnb and then a band comes down the street. You ever had that happen? Fucking awesome. I'm like, holy shit, there's a band out there. And they just come down. People come out on their porches. It's awesome. I love a bandwagon. So I'm happy to use that cliche because I'm jumping on the Bills bandwagon. Fortunately... I had the take on social media that they were going to be the next Super Bowl champion before the playoffs started, before everyone watched what they could do against the Patriots in one of the coldest games you're going to see. I mean, the, the water vapor from their breath was crystallizing in front of them, and it didn't matter. Josh Allen had five touchdowns. He can push that ball through any wind, anything. He is one of the most weatherproof quarterbacks you could ever— if you were to say, okay— Let's build a weatherproof quarterback in a lab. He has to be big. He has to be super mobile, strong legs, and an incredible arm strength to pierce the wind. Oh, I give you Josh Allen. Yeah. I mean, look, the 
the thing that fascinates me about the Bills is if they wanted to run the same game plan New England ran against them when they won early in the season in that like complete weird like snow wind whatever storm that they were playing in, they could have literally run read option with Josh Allen forty times if they really wanted to. They could have right. done that. He's capable of doing that. But the thing that I think that is so interesting, especially about the AFC side, the NFC side's always been somewhat open you know all of these teams have been kind of compressed into that five six team window where any of these five six could get out and, and it is what it is see there I agree with you I don't think the 49ers can because I mean come on Jimmy Garoppolo he's by far and away the worst quarterback left now remember remember the Eagles once upon a time won the Super Bowl with the worst quarterback in the playoffs Nick Foles so it, it, it's possible but you need to have literally the best team by far and away across the board other than quarterback. And I don't think that the 49ers can say that. They have weakness in the secondary. They're a below-average secondary. And if they don't have a lead, they're, they're sort of a game script-dependent team where if they get out to a lead, they can beat anybody. Matt, this is the first time since 1971, I believe, that on divisional round weekend – no team has more than a six-point favorite edge. If all the dogs won this week, I wouldn't be surprised. If every road team won, I would not be surprised. The Bills can can beat the Chiefs. We've seen it. I think the Bengals can go into Nashville and beat the Titans. We've seen the what the Niners can do to just about anybody. And the when was the last time Tampa beat the Rams? It hasn't happened in a while. But I think the last three games, the Rams have beaten Tampa Bay. So it's like... If you look at this, there is an avenue where your AFC championship game is is Bengals at Bills and your NFC championship game is Niners at Rams. Would be chaotic and wild. I agree with you. That the Rams absolutely owned the Buccaneers earlier this season. Like You watch that game, almost every game you've ever seen with Tom Brady, you're thinking, oh, they have a chance to come back here. Oh, you don't count them out. You watch that Rams game, you're like, they're just getting owned at, at every level. Yeah, it was an it was one of the most impressive wins I've seen in many years when the Rams beat the Buccaneers in the regular season. That that was wow. So just look, just knowing that that is possible, the Rams have that, and then they then they just dismantle the Cardinals. It wasn't even wasn't even wasn't even a game. That wasn't competitive. Yeah, right. It wasn't even competitive. I think it's almost a toss up between the Packers, the Buccaneers. And the Rams, and it's just it's a shame that you know, the Rams let the 49ers into the playoffs at all. Yeah. Because they, they, they could have stabbed that vampire dead. Yep. They could have driven a stake through him. Yeah. I would, as a Rams fan, the Niners horrify me because we just can't beat them, right? If the Niners have, find a way to win in Green Bay, if you're Vegas, I'm not sure that line isn't even or maybe even tilted to San Francisco. Like, I, I just, oh, they can't on. beat them. It's, oh, we're, we're 0 for on. our last six. I know the matchup is great. Come, come on, man. 0 for the last six. It, 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 is, it is a shame, though. The Rams <laughs> and the Buccaneers were not challenged in the first round, so the buy that the Packers get is less valuable. You see, like, if it was one of these slugfest games then the buy has more value. But if, if you're able to bench your starters and rest them in the second half anyway, what's the buy getting you? If your opponents were resting in the second half the previous week anyway. 
and you know the Niners are going to run the ball 35, 40 times against Green Bay anyway, so they're just going to be banging bodies for three and a half hours too. That's the thing. We don't know that. They're game script dependent. So all you need to do is get out to a 10 nothing lead, and suddenly the 49ers are a lot easier to manage if you're the Green Bay defense. And do we know if Jair Alexander is going to play in this game? I do not know. I've heard that him and I believe Zadarius Smith are, you know, on trajectory to play. Uh, I think LaFleur said that he's hopeful that they'll play. That's what I heard. I think he's going to play. Alexander's going to play. Jair Alexander's going to play. Come on. And if they do, that that cornerback trio is nuts. Stokes, Rasul Douglas, and Jair Alexander is... That's a lot, that's a lot of firepower cornerback. All right. Alexander was activated in... January 7th he was activated so he's yeah so he's been so by the time the game happens he'll be more than two weeks removed from activation and it was a shoulder injury it wasn't a high ankle sprain see if it's a high ankle sprain he's not going to be the same but a shoulder injury is different if he gets the shoulder healed up he's good to go man yeah they're going to be a very tough out for anybody so that's that's huge having Alexander out there is huge because he can at least take away Brandon Ayuk, and then the rest of your defense can just hover around Kittle and Debo. Yeah. That's a huge advantage to have a, a true shadow corner like Jair Alexander. And I would not put him on Debo. I would not put him on Debo. Just because Debo's their best receiver doesn't mean that's who you put on. You put on your best outside receiver. And Brandon Ayuk's a huge playmaker. Brandon Ayuk was the receiving leader last week, and he is super dangerous. If you can take that weapon away... Then you let the rest of the defense focus on the remaining two big playmakers in the passing game. That's the key. I just think they got to get out to a lead. Packers get out to a lead. It's over. If they don't, it's more of a toss-up. But I still think that you could confidently predict the Packers win that game. Come on, man. Really? You're not? You're, you're, you're worried about that game? Uh, the Packers are my Super Bowl champ, and I'm worried about that game. Like, it's just, there's something about... Shanahan's team it they're either going to give you a a game like like they got last week which kind of was predictable um but they can do that to anybody right like they've shown that they can fight in the trenches with any team in the league and that's what gives me that cause to pause where I'm like eh, can Green Bay run them off the field right because they did that they did that to the Rams last year they are well designed to play in bad weather so you do like that about the 49ers, where they focus more on the running game and yards after the catch and, and, and less on air yards, and that's better if it's windy. Packers, six-point favorites. I think that, that line sounds right to me, and, and that makes them pretty prohibitive to win that game, and so I think they will. And I think it's going to come down to you know one of those three NFC teams against the Bills. I think you're going to be surprised. I think you're going to be surprised with how easily the Bills coast in to the Super Bowl. It reminds me of the early 90s Bills. Remember the early 90s Bills? They would just crush everybody, right? They would beat, they would beat Houston like 38-3, and everyone would be convinced, oh, wow, they just, they were, they're crushing teams on their way to the Super Bowl, and then they face the Cowboys, and it's like, okay. Yeah. Like you talk yourself into the Bills every year because they made it to the, the Super Bowl four straight years, losing by... A greater margin every single year from wide right all the way through to just blowout where Thurman Thomas is forgetting his helmet. Like that, that's the state that they were in at the end. I remember all the, the, the pain and peril 
of the Buffalo Bills, and I just think it's an amazing story in addition to a team that has no weaknesses, where they have the best pass defense, they had the second best pass protection, and if you have the best pass protection and the best pass defense, I mean, that's how you win games in the NFL. So yeah. You need to be able to make big plays and pressure the opposing quarterback. Well, that's the Bills. That's what they do. Yeah. And that's why they're the number one DVOA. And then just across the board, when you look at all the advanced team metrics, they're the best heading into this this playoff. And it's just fascinating that they, they couldn't do it in the regular season to the point that they got the bye. That the they, 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 that that the that the Titans got the bye, which is it's still stunning to me. Like I still can't even get my head around how they lost all those games in the regular season. Yeah, it's pretty crazy, right? Knowing what this team is, it's just football. It you know, I think that if you look at the Bills regular season, it's it's the best explanation for why the NFL is the number one sport in America, because you truly don't know what's gonna happen. You have no idea. Most of these NBA series, they build up and they they seem like they're going to be competitive. And some, some of them are, kind of. But they go to seven games and the number one seed wins. The better team wins, right? I think... Whereas look at the NFL. How the hell did the Bills lose six games? Matt, the team that you just watched dismantle, absolutely obliterate the best defensive mind in the history of football is the same team that a month and a half ago lost 9-6 to Jacksonville. I'm telling you, this is why. That's why this 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 game is so popular. You have to inject randomness. So if, if you're looking, oh, I want to fix baseball, I want to fix hockey, I want to fix basketball, my first recommendation would be insert more randomness. So you can have some of these outcomes like we have with this 9-6 game. That don't make any sense. And it throws every future game into more question. Where that Bills game, they were only four and a half point favorites against the Patriots. And in hindsight, it's like, what? They should have been like at least seven point favorites. That, that line made no sense. And it's partly because of some of these strange games. Where it's just, you know, the, the team wasn't healthy. The team wasn't able to execute, the ball bounces the wrong way on a punt or whatever it is. Next thing you know, game's over 9-6. It's the secret of the NFL's success. The Bills' regular season record is the secret of the NFL's success. I'm telling you, the parlay on all the dog money lines this weekend where your final AFC and NFC championship games would be Bills-Bengals, which is the game that I want. I want to see that. I think Kansas City wins, but that's the game that I want to see. And then Rams-Niners, that parlay is plus 3,700, which does not feel like a 37-to-1 odd that that happens. There's only one team in the NFL that has above-average units across the board. Even the Buccaneers, you know that they have one of the worst secondaries in the league. They're getting healthier, though. Sean Murphy bunting probably comes back from that hamstring injury, and that could be the difference, allowing the Buccaneers to make the Super Bowl because they— finally correct their big weakness in the secondary. But the Bills come into this playoffs with a completely healthy offensive line, all five starters playing and healthy, and all their units outperforming league average in the advanced metric categories and just all the the basic categories where they were number one in point differential, which is something we talk about a lot. 
So if you had to pick a team with zero weaknesses that can't be exploited, that basically in any given game you can't exploit a weakness, that's my case for the Buffalo Bills. Here's my thought on all of it, on all eight teams, real quick. Every one of the eight has a very, very compelling storyline now, right? If you're the Buccaneers and you win again, it not only cements Brady's legacy, but all of the guys around him, right? The guys that won a Super Bowl because of Tom Brady, now all of their legacies are defined forever. The Rams, hypothetically, Matthew Stafford gets the monkey off his back, Sean McVay gets the monkey off his back. Hypothetically, the Niners win. Kyle Shanahan's finally vindicated, right? As this offensive maestro that didn't blow a fourth quarter lead in a big game. Aaron Rodgers wins his second, cements his legacy among the top three, four quarterbacks ever. You go to the AFC side, when was the last time Cincinnati won everything? Here's Joe Burrow. The Bills, welcome to the Josh Allen experience. Patrick Mahomes finally chases down Brady and gets his second ring in in three, four years. Like, this is absolutely nuts, right? And then if the Tennessee Titans happen to win a Super Bowl, this will be the team where we're talking about, like, the 2018-2017 Eagles, where nobody saw it coming, right? There's a compelling storyline for every single one of these teams, and that's why I think this year more than any year, nobody thought that the Eagles can win a Super Bowl. Nobody thought that the Steelers could win a Super Bowl. That's why you want that seventh team to be competitive. That's why we wanted the Chargers is because we felt like they could get hot and make a run. We got it with the 49ers. Yeah. It's not every conference has to give you a potential team that can make a run. The Niners made it as the five. What? The Niners made it as the five seed. The Rams were the four after losing that game. Is that right? Yeah. No, the 49ers were the six seed. Were they the six? Oh, it was yeah. the three six. You're right. The point is, it could have easily been the other way around. Yeah. Where the Eagles win one more game, and they're the six seed, and the 49ers are the seven seed. Yep. The bottom line is they were 10 and seven. Yeah. And they made it in. I, I can't believe there's a debate that the NFL perhaps made a mistake in going to a seven teams making the playoffs from each conference. There are really people complaining about that? I, more football. I'm not going to complain. But, you, but you, you've you heard people, you've seen criticism of this format? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What? There are people like, oh, the seven scenes are non-competitive. Okay, the the one sixteen game in the NCAA tournament isn't competitive either. You watch it because there's some chance that some crazy shit might happen. That that is some that is some hindsight biased bullshit right there. Yeah, yeah. Because if it was the Chargers as the seven seed in the AFC, no one would be complaining. Or if the Eagles had won one more game, whatever, whatever. Yeah. If the Eagles beat Tom Brady in Tampa, the narrative about the seven seed would have changed immediately. If the Eagles beat Tom Brady in Tampa, the narrative about the seven seed would have changed immediately. That's the show. That's the show. Now, I should have mentioned this earlier, but we do have uh, 
uh, a special for everybody. Um, we're going to be taking questions from the audience. Because why not? Question from Aaron Pomerantz. What would you do with picks five and seven as a New York Giants general manager? Ooh, let's, that's fun. Let's see who's projected to be available there. We're going to cover this on another show because we, we've adopted the Giants. So We will cover this on another show. I think both cases you just take. Like, I wouldn't target necessarily a position. You just take best player available at five and seven. And potentially if you can stockpile, if you don't love your options there and you know a team is dying for someone that's available, you move back and bank more capital for 23 and beyond. Um, if you can get a absolute blue chip prospect, then you take them. But if not, you just take the best player available or try to trade out. You're not going to give an answer? You're not going to give a single player? If it's me, I, the, the guy that I want is Evan Neal, but he's not going to be there. <laughs> that's, that's my problem, Matt. Okay, so l- let's, let's talk about this for a second. Derek Stingley could be there at five. If Derek Stingley's there at five, you take him. Um, if you're four, if you're there at five and you're saying, hey, you take a pick, Charles Cross, Mississippi State, the tackle is probably my pick. There you go. Um, there you go. But I think you might be able to get Cross at seven. You're definitely going offensive line with one of those two picks. So the answer mm-hmm. is you're going offensive line. Just depends on the, the, your scouts. Do they, they prefer Charles Cross? Linderbaum is also an option. So Linderbaum or Cross or... Yeah, I'm looking at the big board. If you go to the Dynasty Deluxe, we have the big board, which is an aggregate of all mock drafts. The Athletics, CBS, Draft Blaster, Draft Network, Draft Wire, Draft Tech, NBC Sports, our player profiler, mock drafts courtesy of Cody Carpentier, Pro Football Network, Sports Illustrated. We aggregate all their mock drafts, and Charles Cross will likely be the move. I think that's the move. He's the best offensive lineman that I think is going to be available after Evan Neal. And he'll likely be there. And it's a huge need for the Giants. And it's an, that's an easy win. And then at seven, they could either go edge rusher or corner. If Stingley's there, though, would you get would you go Stingley and then hope Cross falls to seven? I think that's the move. I think that's the move as well. And if you really feel that DB is that much of a need, I don't know how much of a downgrade Sauce Gardner would be. Like If, if you feel like that's a position you want to target, because obviously... A lot of those guys, after you exit the top four, are kind of in that same tier of prospect. It just depends on what you want, right? Karlaftis is going to be there. Sauce Gardner is going to be there. Linderbaum, if you want to go back-to-back O-line. Ooh, back-to-back O-line. That could be the move. Maybe that's the move. Right? Maybe that's the move. There's also uh, Akem Akwanu. Akwanu. That could be interesting. I, I wouldn't take him in the top seven. That's just a personal opinion. But if you... Building your foundation is key. I reticent to say Stingley just because fundamentally, if you're going to start from the ground up, you don't want to draft perimeter players, but Stingley's so good. He is so good. And it's incredible value. And we know that you take James Bradbury, their, their number one corner now, their, their, their alpha there now. Well, he didn't come into his own until he was 25, 26 years old. So you could develop your corner. And if he ascends, you go ahead and extend him. So that 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 would be the move. I think that would be the move. I think you would go Stingley, knowing you can go offensive line, but back to back offensive lines also on the board. I think those are one of the two choices. You'd have to. I, I would try to get some intel. I would try to get some intel on the on the sixth pick. I don't know who picks six. Six is actually Carolina, 
and Carolina does have offensive line as a need. So you you have to take Cross there. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Fortunately, my guess is this is not going to be an issue because Stingley's going to go at pick three or four, and then we it, it, we won't have to worry about it. Just take Cross, and then and then come right back to whatever best offensive tackle available. Yep. Or best offensive lineman, even interior offensive lineman. Yeah. Linderbaum wouldn't be a bad pick either. There you go. I think that's the answer. Probably how I see it shaking out, Aaron, is it's going to be Cross and Linderbaum if it were us in the GM chair. But, but, that's not what they're going to do. I think we know that's not what they're, they're not going to do that. In fact, what do you think the odds are, Anand, that they go offensive line with those two picks at all? Don't you think there's like a 30% chance at least they don't even draft an offensive lineman that they they do something wild like they go safety Kyle Hamilton that's yeah. a, that's the most giants pick that exists they go they go Hamilton Hamilton and then probably like Sauce Gardner I could definitely that's something that's absolutely giants-esque they're going to do something weird they're going to they're going to oh they're going to fuck it up I hope they don't though I hope they don't either that's a historically what? proud franchise that those fans deserve something better than what they've gotten in the past few years. It's but for content, though, for content, we would prefer they fuck it up. <laughs> right? For content, it's going to be great. By the way, here, here's a troll question from Niccolo Sorrentino. Do you think CTE will force the NFL into extinction in the future? That is not a concern anymore. Now that they've changed the rules significantly to avoid these huge collisions and they've upgraded the technology of the helmets. People complain about all these penalties, but they're for a reason because the NFL knew that their very existence was in question and they had to knock it off. They had to stop letting any defender touch a quarterback above the shoulder pads. They can't even touch them. And some of these some of these tackles are just vicious and they get penalized because they're like, "Listen, you just hit the guy too hard, and we can't have those kinds of collisions on the field, period. Because, again, it puts the future of the sport into peril. So we, you're just not allowed to do it. So that's the weird thing. When I hear people criticize some of this officiating, it's like, no, man, they have to do this. It's for the health and well-being of the players so that they can actually be functional human beings after age 60. Yeah. It's it's such a like a you know ghoulish position to take that the, the the hits aren't violent enough fuck you yeah but have you noticed the concussions are down yeah concussions are down concussions are down i don't know if it's a reporting issue but you're seeing fewer players getting concussed we have the injury data i'm seeing it and then the other thing too is football players in this day and age with the advances in modern medicine and as many things have been written about it they're far more aware of the long-term risks too so no, at this point, no one can come back and be like, oh, I didn't know I was at risk for this. The, the data is out there. We know what the risks involved with playing football are. And I think a big part of it is guys in the 60s and 70s probably knew hitting your head repeatedly wasn't a good idea, but they didn't know just how bad it could be. Right. I think that's a big part of it, too, is the acknowledgement that, hey, this is, this is a very violent and dangerous sport, and you need to understand what you're committing to. Yeah, all the information is now out. On these concussions, everyone knows what's intuitive. That, like, you smash your head over and over and over again, you're more likely to develop CTE. That's always going to be the case. Yep. Right? Some professions are 
putting their employees and their workforce at greater risk of certain types of injuries. And that's something that NFL players have to reckon with when they decide to play the sport. And that's why they're the, the most violent play in football is the kickoff, no question. And they're trying as much as they can to keep the kickoff in the game while eliminating a lot of those. Just get rid of it. Just get rid of it. Just get, they, That's the next step. Um, there is an idea that I think would help to reduce head trauma, and that's to put sort of a poly foam exterior on the helmets. That would reduce the, the impact significantly to put the poly foam on the outside of the helmets as well. It's just a thin layer, but you would miss that sound, that yep. football sound. How much that would change the sport, I don't know. I think if I were to make any new equipment suggestions, that would be the one I would investigate first. Because fuck the sound, man. Again, we're talking about head trauma. We're talking about the health and welfare of these players in the long run. And if just adding a thin poly layer on the helmet on the top, a spongy layer, would help, then they should do it. They should do it. But, but don't forget, a lot of these players, though, opt out of this. Like, they all have the option of wearing the most protective helmet, and many players opt out. Yep. Now, certain players that are they're hyper-aware of their health and future brain function, like Aaron Rodgers, who wants to host Jeopardy, he's the, he wears one of those helmets, you can tell. And a lot of players do now, a lot more do now than they used to, which I yeah. think is part of what's helping, is that's yeah. becoming a standard. They should just not allow players to opt out. I think eventually that's where we're going to go. I mean, look, the the NFL that the Super Bowl won, Len Dawson, chain smoking cigarettes and drinking a Fresca, iconic NFL photo forever. But we're never going to get anywhere near that again, right? I think they're they're taking steps year by year to make sure the game is as safe as it can be. But inherently, when you have two hyper-athletes, top 1% of the top 1% most athletic people in the world – trying to chase each other down on you know what essentially amounts to fake grass there's injury risk is going to like there are going to be injuries shit's going to happen that's inevitable it's they're trying to legislate all of the oh shit that's a hit that could end someone's life end someone's career type things out of the game and i think they've done a pretty good job of of actually doing that as much as everybody hates the fact that you can't get big hits anymore and the reason why I called it a troll question, for those of you objecting to me, call it a troll question. It was a troll question because we know the NFL is not going to be extinct. No. It generates way too much revenue. So the way to frame the question would be, has the NFL done enough to protect the players from CTE? And the answer is no. They should do more. They can do more. The whole scandal was completely shameful. Fortunately, now... There's movies like Concussion that were made. There's been deep dives done by HBO Real Sports and, 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 and many journalists that have exposed this issue and forced the NFL to make these rules changes and make these equipment changes. And to this notion that any improvements to helmet technology just incentivizes players to use the helmet more as a weapon, well, that's why we have rules against spearing so that they can't use the helmet as a weapon anymore. So that's not an argument, a valid argument, against improving helmet technology. No. 
and I know Rydell's been doing a lot. A lot of these these helmet producing companies have been trying to be the first to that sort of hey, we have the safest helmet ever that is going to prevent X, Y, and Z over and over again. There, every helmet producing company in the world right now is trying to be the one that says, hey, we have the helmet that's going to prevent concussions. No, no, Anand. No, don't you know? When you drive a car, you should not wear a seatbelt. That just incentivizes you to drive faster and more reckless. But, I mean, look, NFL players are much more aware of the risks involved of what they're doing than they were even 20 years ago. And so I think the fact that the NFLPA has done as much as they've done to try and push the league further and further into modernizing the safety of the game is a big credit, one, to the NFLPA and the league office for listening to them. I think it's a big it's a big step in the right direction that they've taken in the last decade. But again, like we're talking about the kickoff, and then, you know, as players adjust to these new rules, it's going to be a little bit different. How you watch people tackle change in the last decade, there's a lot of it that's going to change, and it's going to change a little bit of the product. But I think it's better for the long-term health of the players, and that that's what matters. It's also interesting. You get corporations get criticized because they make too much money or there's just too much money in this industry. There's too much money in this. There's too much money, there's too much money in football. Well, all this money in football protects the players. If the NFL didn't make as much money as it does, there wouldn't be as much at stake with the future of the sport. So the fact that the sport generates so much revenue helps to protect the players because it raises the stakes and helps Action items get implemented sooner. Rules changes get implemented sooner because there's so much money at stake. Yeah. The players are now more protected than they've ever been, right? And they're only going to continue to get more protected as the sport grows and grows and grows and reaches new audiences. You know, they came out with that international initiative and, you know, gave, you know, certain regions of the world their teams to root for, so to speak. I mean, look, like as this thing just continues to grow, there's going to be more money spent on keeping athletes safe. There's going to be more money spent on helmet technology. The more money they generate, the more mo- the the piece of the pie may not get larger, but the amount of money going into these different research endeavors is going to be more and more and more. And I think that's really where the value in all of the effort that the NFLPA and the NFL have put into making the game safer shows its value, right? The game continues to grow. Whereas, hypothetically, if they had endangered all of their players and kept the old rules, you might have seen growth stagnate or even slide a little bit. And I think they did a really good job in the time that they had to do that. The other expediting force was the perception of parents that football was dangerous for their kids. And now that information's out there and there are parents that won't let their kids play football. But not so much that there is no more youth football. I think that has come into equilibrium, and there there certainly are fewer youth leagues than there were before, and the NFL is starting to source more talent internationally, and I think that's fine. Yeah. I think that's fine. So sometimes challenges can lead to positive results, and if if the sport can become more international because they need to look beyond American school systems for talent, great. It's good for them, right? It's better for the sport. It is. It is. And, I mean, you're starting to see people abroad. You're starting to see people from Canada. And, you know, it, it, it's 
it's globalizing the game in a way that they've desperately wanted to for a long time. But until you get actual players and people have emotional investment in them, it's going to be tough. The starting point is the CTE scandal in the NFL was shameful. And it made me question whether I should even be involved with the sport. But you can still find silver linings. Yeah. So another silver lining is that just the general awareness of CTE at all. The first time I heard about CTE, the condition was the uh, special teamer from New Orleans. Yeah. Steve, Steve Gleason, right? Yep. I, like, I learned about what CTE is through his story. And now we have greater appreciation. So when our daughter goes to play lacrosse, guess what's in my head? The Steve Gleason story. And maybe had I not learned about CTE that way, when you notice, oh, these sticks hitting people in the head, you know, I have a better appreciation of the long-term consequences that can come from that kind of trauma. Yeah. So then parents are more informed when they decide whether their kid's going to play football or play lacrosse. Yeah. Especially this whole girls across where they, they don't wear helmets. It was just, Crazy. just ridiculous. It's insane. Right? For the, uh, the seatbelt unclicking helmets are the problem people in this audience. We actually have people in this audience that think the helmets are the problem. Please. Yeah. I, I can't subscribe to that. Sorry. <laughs> sir, good Q&A with the audience. We'll keep doing this. Yes, sir. Get the, uh, get the listeners on YouTube and, and all the streaming services involved. Yep. Let's enjoy those games. Yeah. Oh, my God. What a weekend this is going to be. I think this is the best divisional weekend I've seen in a long time. I'm excited. It's a real, true, non-fake stat. Render a guess, bro. I... While... I'm completely blanking on tight ends that exist right now. Why am I blanking so hard right now? You know you want to do it. You want to hand it off. I know you do. Offensive coordinator, you're dying to hand it off. You know that the analytics say to throw, but you, you want to do it. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. You know, every blind squirrel is going to run into a nut eventually. Why did you hit the self-destruct button? Listen, man, if you're drafting a player in the mid-first round to stop the QB sneak, you're focused on the wrong details, Anand. One of the great injustices in the history of the NFL is that Tom Coughlin has two Super Bowls. Why did you hit the self-destruct button? I think basically it's like 200, but yeah, so that's, that's realistic, right? That's totally realistic. We would have 100 billion. Super realistic. Like, if this guy's in a bar fight, we probably want him on the defensive line. My family has roots in San Diego. Why did you hit the self-destruct button? You want to build back better. That would be a good slogan, don't you think? That could be our slogan for the Giants, build back better. That's his, that's his ring to it. That sounds really good. I can't believe I'm the first person to think of that. I love alliteration. For content, we would prefer they fuck it up. You're just fucking anchored, dude. How the hell? Why did you hit the self-destruct button? That that is some That is some hindsight-biased bullshit right there. The Bills' regular season record is the secret of the NFL's success. Why did you hit the self-destruct button? What are you waiting for, Tepper? Come on, Tep. Let's go.
That could be our slogan for the Giants, build back better. And that's, that's, that's his ring to it. That sounds really good. I can't believe I'm the first person to think of that.